Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 56, The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. Children growing, women producing, men go work in some steel. L-O-X, yeah. J-Lo, yeah, yeah, yo, yo, we off the block this year, went from a low to a lot this year, everybody mad at the rocks that I wear, I know where I'm going and I know where I'm from, you hear locks in the air, yeah, we at the airport out, D-block from the block where everybody air forced out, with a new white tee, you fresh, nothing phony with us, make the money, get the mansion, bring the homies with us. From living color to movie scripts, to all the six, to J-Lo to this, headline clips, I stay grounded as the amounts rolling. I'm real, I thought I told ya I'm real even, oh no bruh That's just me Nothing phony, don't hate on me What you get is what you see Don't be fooled by the rocks that I got I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read and determine whether it is worthy of its reputation. So I'm still leading us through this, and the nanny to my Esperanza, perhaps, <laughs> uh, though maybe, yeah, well, I guess he would have to be the Esperanza, and I would have to be the nanny if we were doing like older, younger mm. siblings, but it's my co-host, Tom Panneries. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm okay. Here we are, summertime. Yeah. And this is good, even though we're recording in June and this episode will be out in July, I had just seen In the Heights. And as I was mm. watching, I was like, oh, man, it's so good that I read The House on Mango Street. Not that it's like a one-to-one comparison, but just like having having that nice summer film and then also just representation, which was mm. great. So, But anyway, yeah, so I'm doing well. How are you? You had a victory today. What was your victory? Oh, the school year ended today. <laughs> I get to go home. Oh, boy. Get to go home? It's like you're in a prison. <laughs> no. It's too bad. No, yeah, but I mean, I think we're and we're both exhausted at this point, but it'll be hopefully I'll be able to catch up on uh, on sleep and or at least just recharge a little bit over the next couple of months before I have to go back in August. So yeah, that'll speak be, for yourself. Yeah, I know. Yeah, certainly is a thing. I mean, I, I chose this for myself, but I, I will miss those, those summer times where I could recover and... Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, you know, a slave to no one and basically <laughs> just do whatever I want. But now, unfortunately, I don't have that option. Yeah. So, yeah, so here we are. 
any summer films that you're looking forward to in particular? Are you getting back out there into the theaters? I don't know what's okay. coming out, to be honest with you. I know that I'm, I'm probably going to see Black Widow, yeah. yeah. And then, but other than that, I really haven't been paying much attention to what's coming out. And um, so I don't think, I'm trying to think of what the last movie I saw in the theater was that it might have been Knives Out. So, because, oh, wow. yeah, because yeah, aside from Marvel movies, we really didn't get, we really don't get to a lot of movies. So, gotcha. you know, I just, you know, kind of see what, see what's coming down the pike and see what what's worth with going but uh yeah we don't have any particular plans as of yet yeah the the film that i saw before the pandemic well actually no mid pandemic was new mutants before mm. they shut down the theaters and then the first movie back that i saw was a quiet place part two and then mm. in the heights of course i do recommend in the heights but i think you're a bit wishy-washy on musical theater i'm not a musical yeah, person. So i mean i enjoyed I hamilton but yeah uh, you know you did enjoy hamilton yeah we watched it when when it dropped on disney plus okay. last year and I think it was it was pretty good i mean so. it would be closer to that than cats yeah you know my again i'm not i'm not the biggest musical theater person yeah. so there's no convincing him folks that's it well mm. here we <laughs> we are going to talk not about in the heights but other representation. I was looking for a book that had uh, Latinx or uh, Hispanic representation. I feel like we've not done that yet, and we've been mm. not really hitting as if we're making check marks, but just trying to do different authors and stories and representation. And so here we are with the house on Mango Street. So, what is your history with the house on Mango Street? Um, this is the first time I have ever read it, although I've seen this book repeatedly in um, the book room of where I've worked over uh, over the years in various the, in the three high schools where I've taught. So I know it's been used in high school, um, I think in the ninth grade. Um, I think in uh, there's a few copies of it in my school's book room because I grabbed one for the purpose of this podcast episode. Uh, but I want to say this is actually used down in the middle school grades. But this is the first time I've read it after seeing it, you know, on shelves here and there. Over yeah, the years. I would say my history is quite similar to yours, that it, it was I always saw it pop up around Covenant. And mm -hmm. it was either on top of the locker tops <laughs> or it was I think, you know, I saw some of those copies around in, in the library and I'm not sure what level would have had it if it were like an assigned summer reading. But also, I do recall another reason I would have seen it is my department chair. At the end of the year, we gave book awards to our not necessarily top students. That's how it went for me, you know, top academically as well as participation and, and overall attitude and love of the language. But sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, that love of the language and attitude might not get the best grades so you get them at, but you are able to choose whatever book you would like and so i remember that my department chair who is also the spanish teacher would get this for him oh sorry oh, okay. for for students as well so wrapping them i remember wrapping many houses on mango street mm. but okay. yeah so i just never knew i know i've i've seen this as well as that one the author i think is a chebe 
I can't remember what the uh, the uh, things, yes, things fall apart. Yes, I always yeah. see that everywhere, and I'm like, well, you know, I should probably subliminally, I, I suppose I should read this just so I mm-hmm. know it whenever I see it. So I'm glad that I'm finally reading this this particular novel. And then when I was actually looking for a good novel to to show this representation, I asked one of my former students who is Mexican-American, I said, what do you think about House on Mango Street? Do you feel like it would be a good one to talk about? And she loves it and says, mm-hmm. like, it, it show, it's, like, 100% accurate in its representation. It, it gets no better than that. So there's no higher praise, I would say, than, you know, yeah. showing showing story uh, true, to, true to life, which is great. So, uh, okay, well, then we'll, we'll move on and go okay. into the real life history of the author and i got this actually from the chicago public library because of course cisneros the author was born in chicago's and this story slash you know i almost want to call it a memoir i know it's not but it feels like one to me that also takes place in chicago so i feel like chicago public library is in fact a reasonable source to you so anyway Sandra cisneros was born in chicago in 1954 the only daughter in a family of seven children the cisneros family traveled frequently between chicago and mexico to visit relatives often settling in a different home upon each return the family resided for the majority of Sandra's youth in the humboldt park neighborhood growing up in a home where library cards were mandatory don't you love that? Sandra retreated into books and began to express herself in poetry. It was in high school at St. Josephinum in Chicago that Cisneros first found an outlet and discovered acceptance for her creativity. Encouraged by a teacher, Cisneros wrote poetry and became willing to share her work with her young peers. She worked on a high school literary magazine, eventually becoming editor. Cisneros went on to study English at Loyola University of Chicago. Is that a sister to your university? I uh, don't think they actually are directly affiliated with each other. St. Ignatius of Loyola founded the Jesuits. So there are four colleges and universities that use his name. So there's Loyola, Maryland, which is my uh, where I got my bachelor's, um, Loyola, Chicago, Loyola, New Orleans, and then Loyola, Marymount, which is out in California, I believe. But I don't think they, aside from their affiliation with the Catholic Church and the Jesuit order, they're not um, technically connected to one okay. another. In 1978, Cisneros received her MFA in creative writing from the renowned University of Iowa Leaders Workshop. There's someone else that went there. There's a a lot of people have come out of that, yeah. and it's there's a think there's a running who's like memoir that I yeah. read in the past couple of years that went there. Maybe uh, Ann Patchett? Did Ann Patchett go there? Possibly. There's a running joke about the the uh, the people who come out of Iowa be, were being referred to as the Iowa Mafia. So, oh. <laughs> so it's an old joke I heard years ago. Oh, did they shoot people? I maybe with pens. I don't know. Oh. With their Upon, words. <laughs> with their words, yeah. Upon graduating from the writer's workshop, Cisneros returned to Chicago and took a job teaching at the Latino Youth Alternative High School, a facility for high school dropouts. In her free time, she wrote and submitted poems to literary journals with some success. She read her poems to club and coffee shop audiences, or cafe, gradually earning a local reputation. In 1982, Cisneros received a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. With the award money, she went to Europe, where she wrote The House on Mango Street. Drawing on the rootlessness of her childhood, the book created a vibrant picture of one girl's idolization of home. The house from the title is a composite of the author's many homes, but is placed on a street, Mango Street, where the Cisneros family never actually lived. 
Published in 84, the book gained international acclaim, winning Cisneros the American Book Award. Today, it is requ- <gasps> what? It is required reading in schools throughout the United States. In 85 came the publication of Antijitos uh, and the Rodrigo poems. In 87, Cisneros' master's thesis, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, was revised and expanded, then published by the Third Woman Press. This collection of poems touches upon a melange of topics, among them female emancipation, friendship, and self-identity. With her book, Woman, Hollering Creek, and Other Stories, Cisneros became the first Chicana author to sign with a major American publisher, Random House, depicting the lives of Chicana women in the San Antonio area. The book garnered both critical and popular acclaim and earned the author the financial stability she would need to be a full-time writer. Cisneros' long-awaited second novel, Caramello, fictionalized the author's family, highlighting a trip between Chicago and Mexico and the main character's conversion from child to young adult. Caramello was selected as a notable book of the year by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Chicago Tribune, and the Seattle Times. In 2005, Caramello was awarded the Premio Napoli and was shortlisted for the Dublin International Impact Award. Her most recent book is Have You Seen Marie? An Illustrated Fable for Adults. Cisneros' books have been translated into over a dozen languages. She has been a visiting writer at a number of universities, and her daring and original works have won her numerous awards and fellowships, including the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, and she's president and founder of the Macondo Foundation, an association of writers dedicated to social involvement. And she directs the Alfredo Cisneros Del Moral Foundation, granting funds to Texas writers. She continues to write poetry and prose and is working on a collection of fiction called Infinito, a children's book titled Bravo, Bruno, and a book about writing that she will call Writing in My Pajamas. And who knows when that was, I should have seen when that was updated. I mean, some of these things could be out already. Okay, so that was the history of the book as well as the author. So here we are with the plot synopsis, which is a bit difficult if you've read it because the book is a series of vignettes. So they're almost little stories in between, or maybe not stories, but episodes all combined. So... We did the best we could, or wherever I got this plot synopsis, did the best they could, and I appreciate them. Okay, so The House on Mango Street covers a year in the life of Esperanza Cordero, a young Chicana girl living in an impoverished Chicago neighborhood with her parents and three siblings. The book opens with Esperanza, the narrator, explaining how her family first arrived on Mango Street. Before the family settled in their new home, a small rundown building with crumbling red bricks, they moved frequently. The family has been wandering from place to place, always dreaming oh, dreaming of the promised land of a house of their own. When they finally arrive at the house on Mango Street, which is at last their own house, it is not the promised land of their dreams. The parents overcome their dejection by saying that this is not the end of their moving, that it is only a temporary stop before going on to the promised house. While the house on Mango Street was a significant improvement from her family's previous dwellings, Esperanza expresses disdain towards her new home because it is not a real house like the ones she has seen on TV. 
Esperanza constantly daydreams of a white wooden house with a big yard and many trees. She finds her life on Mango Street suffocating and frequently expresses her desire to escape. She begins to write poetry to express these feelings. Esperanza's perceptive nature shines through as she begins the novel with detailed descriptions of the minute behaviors and characteristics of her family members and unusual neighbors. Her descriptions provide a picture of the neighborhood and offer examples of the many influential people surrounding her. She describes time spent with her younger sister, Nanny, such as when they paraded around the neighborhood in high heels one day with their friends Rachel and Lucy. She also befriends two older girls in the neighborhood, Alicia, a promising young college student with a dead mother, and Marin, who spends her days babysitting her younger cousins. Esperanza highlights significant or telling moments both in her life and in the lives of those in her community. She mostly focuses on moments that show the difficulties that they experience, such as when Louis's cousin was arrested for stealing a car, or when Esperanza's Aunt Lupe dies. As the vignettes progress, the novel depicts Esperanza's budding maturity and developing her own perspective of the world around her. As Esperanza eventually enters puberty, she develops sexually, physically, and emotionally. With these changes, Esperanza begins to notice and enjoy male attention. She quickly befriends Sally, an attractive girl who wears heavy makeup and dresses provocatively. Sally's father, a deeply religious and physically abusive man, prevents her from leaving their home. Sally's and Esperanza's friendship is compromised when Sally ditches Esperanza for a boy at a carnival, and ugh, Esperanza is raped by a group of men. I think it was a group. But anyways, Esperanza recounts other instances of assault she experiences, like when an older man forcibly kissed her on the lips at her first job. Esperanza's traumatic experiences and observations of the women in her neighborhood, many of whom are constantly controlled by the men in their lives, only further cement her desire to escape Mango Street. It is only when Esperanza meets Rachel and Lucy's aunts, three sisters, and they tell her fortune that she realizes that her experiences on Mango Street have shaped her identity and that it will always be with her, even if she leaves. As the novel ends, Esperanza vows that after she leaves, she will return to help the people she has left behind. Sorry, I'm trying to find that. Yeah, the red clown. Oh, red clowns. <gasps> oh, well, make him stop. I couldn't make them go away. Okay. I guess I missed that. Yeah, okay. Okay. Staying corrected. So worse than upon my first reading. Okay, Tom, <laughs> did you <laughs> did you enjoy The House on Mango Street? I didn't know what to make of this book. To, wow, to please you. explain yourself. This is the first time you've ever answered in that way. I kept looking for a plot. And I spent the entire time figuring out what the plot of this book was. And so I wasn't really, I mean, I, I think it was a very good character piece. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really good illustration of a, of, a, of a setting. But I kept looking for a plot. And, and when I, it took me a very long time. It took me until I was almost done with the book to realize there really is no plot to this novel. Mm -hmm. And then I was kind of like trying, to, then I was trying to go back and figure out okay, well, how has this character changed? And so I wasn't, and, and then I was trying to figure out why do people assign this to students? Because they're going to be confused because they're going to think that nothing happens. So I was, a, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm missing something or, or something. It wasn't bad. I did not, I did not like it. You, I just, you didn't not like it. Is that what I did you just not said? like it. I'm not going to say, oh, this is terrible. I was just like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, yeah, like I said, I, I didn't know what to make now, of it. Now, trying to think how to ask my question <laughs> unoffensively. But was it, 
more like if you had gone in knowing that it was a series of vignettes would that have changed it like was the issue the fact that you were going in thinking it was a novel with a plot and so you weren't able to break out of that and so that's why it reduced your enjoyment yeah okay did you read the introduction by any chance um what introduction okay that answers that question. <laughs> yeah, so mine, which is the 25th anniversary edition, no. it has an introduction by Sandra, and it's mostly written in third person. She, you know, there's a picture of her, and she says, the young woman in this photograph is me. So that gave me background into, you know, the reason why I almost want to call it a memoir, and so she was talking about that lived experience with crafting this, and then she explained how it was episodes or vignettes so i had gone into page number one or or chapter one i suppose vignette number one knowing it was set up that way mm-hmm. i think i agree with you about i guess we could tackle this now mm. it could also be at the end with because there isn't a plot you do and you're following these people around you do have to i think pay closer attention to Esperanza and it might be and I guess it's the gift of being shorter in length it's only about 100 pages yeah it's not very long I feel like it requires which I don't know if this is a failing or not two reads like subsequent reads just one subsequent read I suppose because you're reading everything piecemeal and then once all of that data is sort of out there, reading it again to then see that arc of Esperanza. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I, I guess we can get into all of that. So you would say you're, it was an okay novel, but you didn't enjoy it as much. I guess. Like I said, I, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure because, I mean, it, it looks like a very good piece to study characterization. And, um, that, and I felt the characters were very, very vivid um i can't i would i want to say real too but i can't speak to that particular experience and say oh these are realistic mm-hmm. characters but i'm gonna you know take kind of people's word for it on that because they seem very real to me mm-hmm. and um the the moments were very vivid so it's a very well-written book but like i said it's just like i said yeah it's it's one of those things where had i known going in what the structure was like i probably wouldn't have been like, I honestly have a hard time remembering what happened in the book. Okay. Would you compare this, or how would you compare this to Fun Home? Because Fun Home also has more or less an arc that you're following, but with, with Bechtel, obviously, you know, showing, mm-hmm. I guess, growing up in her queerness and her relationship with her father and everything like that. But that's also like a series of... Maybe not disjointed, but, you know, little vignettes as well. But there's something I found that easy to follow. Okay. Because there was a central mystery surrounding who her father was. Mm-hmm. It, it anchored it. And there was, a there was even if it did jump around here and there, there was kind of a chronological progression. So that there was a little bit more of a plot because it was her, yes, exploring her own herself and her sexuality and her queerness but it was also her unraveling the mystery that it was her father's queerness and then the relationship with her mother and everything um, i found that a little easier to follow and also and this is going to sound again this is going to make me sound like an idiot fun home's easier to follow because it's a graphic novel yeah and i have images to put to the to what's on there 
you know, so there might be some similarities there, but I don't know. I found that a lot easier to follow. Which I guess is true with Persepolis as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I I would almost apologize, but I didn't know that they were vignettes, so I. Well, you know, it's nothing to apologize for. <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm I'm almost sorry. That's nothing to apologize. But uh, yeah, so here we are. Okay, so I get did I even answer my question? I en- I enjoyed it. Mm. I think it was not what I was expecting for sure. I think I went in thinking it was going to be a novel as well, and it it's hard for me to refer to it even though the, the plot synopsis considered considers it that but it was it was unexpected and then um we'll talk about the formatting or uh, especially the language i i enjoyed so okay yeah so let us get into i mean do you think we've already answered potentially this but i did want to talk about i, I think a huge factor in this and, and how it is and how she wrote it is how it's formatted mm-hmm. using these these little episodes it's a year and there's a nice you know how i love it ring composition where we start and end talking about the house on mango street how how is it successful or unsuccessful using uh these little pieces of esperanza's life little glimpses into her day-to-day rather than you know a, a narrative thread like i said it it makes for a good character study of her, the people around her, the neighborhood, the setting. So there's a lot of different elements that this has that has that are strengths of it. And being given these titles, these little short, very short vignettes in some cases, some of them are like a page and a half long. Mm-hmm. It allows for uh, you to do that kind of examination of it. So yeah, I think it's I think I think they are successful in that regard. I think if you were going to do something with vignettes that you would want to make sure that they were not too long because then you would really lose your your audience. But mm-hmm. so it does though it it does lend itself well. The structure does lend itself well to what her purpose is. Yeah. Yeah, and those titles are so interesting mm-hmm. too. Like they really get at the heart of what the episode or the vignette is about like you could almost just parse out the titles and you know what is she talking about here i like the formatting i think it's something different i mean you know i don't normally gravitate towards this mm-hmm. type of work and so that was for me I, I felt like it was refreshing like oh this is really interesting was it more difficult to get engaged with potentially and then you know again there are moments where you're like trying to <laughs> figure out what's happening here because it seems like a longer time than a year. I, until you mentioned it, I had no idea this took place over. Yeah, yeah, especially because her friend was it Sally? I think it was Sally who gets married, mm-hmm. and then so I'm like, oh wow, so Esperanza must be 16, right? Mm-hmm. And then it says, oh, before you know, eighth grade. And I thought, well, we haven't moved past at all. Yeah. We're all it seems, which is crazy because you're reading watching esperanza grow and it seems like wow we're really watching the years pass by but actually no and so it's really interesting which i i think might be a a good reason to give it to middle schoolers there's some tough thematic issues to go through and material and everything but just because middle schoolers go through so much it's such an awkward period of time that it feels like even for me on the outside now watching my students 
it feels like so much goes on in their life in mm-hmm. a short amount of, of, of time span. So I feel like this work really reflects that in, in how it is, is laid out. Yeah, adolescence is one of those phases in your life where over a short period of time, a tremendous amount seems to happen. And it seems like as you get older into adulthood, there's a really stretched perception. You know, like you start to think about things that happened to you or things you did. And it's been five years since that happened. And you're like, wait a second, it's been five years since that happened. Whereas in in adolescence, it's like, wait, it's only been three months uh, so, and I don't, I don't know what it is. Is it the changes to your body and your, and your mental state and things like that? Is it just the nature of, of school and, and life and things like that, that, that does it? But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's, a uh, you know, there's, I'm not surprised that a lot happens over the course of the year that this takes place over. Yeah, absolutely. Well, something that matches or works with the, the formatting, I should say, is, well, actually, I'm kind of giving away my answers, so mm-hmm. I'll just say, <laughs> how how does Sandra's background in poetry appear in this work, if it does? Did you know she had a background in poetry? Did you feel something different while you were reading these episodes? I did not know, but now that I do, there is a book. Um, I've read a few. I've read a few YA novels that are like poetry novels two that I can recommend. One is called Swing. It's by Kwame Alexander. And the other one is called The Poet X, which is by, I want to say the author's name is Elizabeth Acevedo. And it is uh, from page to page, chapter to chapter. Everything's almost like a different poem, but it tells a plot progressively. And this had a similar flow to that. There was a there was almost a poetic flow to the prose, funny enough, of this novel and that poetic nature of the use of imagery and metaphor and and other figure pieces of figurative language was very present in this novel and i felt it lent itself very very well to the writing that was there absolutely i think i i have a similar well this in this case is a memoir and i didn't have time to pull my Goodreads up, but since you're talking about it, but it's it's a memoir about a woman who loses, who has lost her husband, so she's revisiting her relationship with him, and she has a poetry background, and just the way that she writes, you can tell that it's there. And so even, you know, if I were to pick out just a line or a sentence from Cisneros here, from the three sisters, they came with the wind that blows in August, thin as a spider web and barely noticed. I mean, sure, you can do that as <laughs> just prose, but it feels poetic. And some of the formatting, I think, lends itself towards poetry as well. And also, though, I will say that there were times, and I think she might do this intentionally. Well, clearly, she does it intentionally. But I don't know if the effect is what she inten- intentioned or not. But sometimes the formatting, it is confusing who is speaking or about who. Mm is being spoken and i don't know if that's to make the character sort of meld like even though there are different people their experiences are very similar but it's like you're trying to figure out which pronouns are going where sometimes quotation marks are left off but people are speaking so she she just has a unique way of writing which makes i think some of the 
episodes more vivid and then yeah just a a, a a way with words and language that i think lend itself to this memoir slash novel slash series of vignettes yeah yeah because I'm, I'm just looking through the book right now and there's a lot of very short paragraphs in some cases there's a back and forth and it has its sort of um almost like spoken word poetry rhythm to it in in pieces and and some kind sometimes it's the way it's written it's almost like she's trying to get you to speak it at a certain pace by going for the short paragraphs as opposed to longer ones where it seems like it should slow down at that point so yeah, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely. okay last month we try not to keep continuity in the show but let's just say in a previous episode we discussed tom let us talking about a raisin in the sun by lorraine hansberry and as i was reading this particular series of vignettes in particular whenever it was talked about the home and getting out from you know the family or even thinking about cisneros's life and and trying to live on her own away from her family i drew comparisons like i felt like oh man i'm feeling some themes come through that we had seen in Raisin in the Sun. Could a comparison be made or should it be made? Is it inappropriate to make that since there are different people groups? And if it's okay to make these comparisons, what comparisons do you see between this work and a Raisin in the Sun? I think comparison or 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 um, pairing them up or putting them side by, you know, putting them side by side is comparing them. But, you know, um, I think that's an apt thing to do. Um, you know, they aside from the fact that they both take place in Chicago, you're talking about a minority community, community of color in both of them who are of uh, their socioeconomic status is not any higher echelons of socioeconomic status, you know, for, for lack of a better, lack of a better term. And in A Raisin in the Sun, you have characters who are very, very excited to getting out of where they are, especially Ruth, right? Um, Ruth at one point toward this, as she develops toward the end of the place, she's like, like, get me out of this apartment, you know, and Walter wants to as well. But like Ruth, I think is probably the best comparison, comparative character here. You know, yeah, Esperanza, it's not exactly one for one because Esperanza is a teenager, whereas, you know, most of the characters that we see in, um, because Travis doesn't really have much of a character development in, in A Raisin in the Sun, um, but all the other characters are adults. But even then, like, I don't know, I, I, I feel that there's, there's some, you can relate these to each other in some way, right? Yeah. Maybe this is the side story of if Travis had his own boy. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I felt like there was definitely a comparison. I, I second all the things you said. I think also disappointment, mm-hmm. you know, in, in getting your, well, you know, dream deferred, first of all, but yeah. also if you get where you're going to go, also inevitably, not I shouldn't say that, but in those, in these two instances, there is disappointment because... We don't know what happens in part two of A Raisin in the Sun, but we can assume that there's some violence and it might be it's not going to be a good situation in their house. And then over here, you know, they had these grand plans for this wonderful house and the parents were really lifting up this this great idea. And then the house on Mango Street did not fit that ideal. So there's some disappointment there. And also some white flight was going on, too. Yeah. Which was very kind of blink if you miss it 
in this in House on Mango Street, and it was just a comment from another character, and I couldn't figure out if the character was white. I think the character was white, mm-hmm. but a girl just t- basically saying that because you people are here. You know, when you people moved in, like all the white people got out. It's like, oh, I see what's happening yeah. here. Yeah, and that's not something was mentioned in A Reason in the Sun because I don't think it had really started to the level. I think it was because Raisin in the Sun was like, what, 59? I think white flight, as we know it, really doesn't start to happen en masse until like a couple years after Raisin. So probably like in the 60s is when I associate it, at least in the, the area where I grew up. But yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Yeah, I, I, I think, but I think it's, it's again, it, it, it's that we've talked about, I went into length about systemic racism and housing policy, you know, et cetera, and, and segregated neighborhoods and things like that. And this is just another piece of that particular mosaic, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, the idea that it's, it's not an African American family, it's a, a Latinx family, Mexican American family. But they're still facing prejudice and they're still facing the way that the system is working against them because they are they are Mm non-white. So although much of the book details experiences outside the narrator's house, why do you think Cisneros chose the house on Mango Street as her title? What does it reveal about her connection to her family, her home and her neighborhood? I would say that since it begins and with her moving into that house, that's why we're getting that title in that the move into that house, which was the first house the family owned, is a symbolic moment for her. And you, you earlier, uh, a few minutes ago, mentioned how it does kind of fall into the whole dream deferred aspect of it as well, though, because they're chasing they're chasing the American dream, which is a common conversation to have in English classes in high school, right? Like you're, you're always, especially when you talk about like the great Gatsby and stuff like that, you're always talking about what is the American dream and how is it hollow and stuff. And this is a good example of that. Like, you know, that they're, they're, that the American dream is almost this like unachievable ideal. And part of it is a house and like, they think they've got it and they arrive and it's just like, this is very disappointing. This is very sad. Um, so I think I think it it starts us off and provides a catalyst and then becomes a symbol of the disappointment or if not the disappointment, then the struggle and um, the I don't know if it's the symbol. I don't know how much hope they've lost because of this or if they're, you know. If 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 she thinks that they they can that they should have more hope because of it, you know that 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 I'm I'm still trying to figure out. Yeah, and really the only alternate title would just be Mango Street. Yeah. To show, you know, but that that almost encompasses like, well, I guess it could potentially work, but I just feel like it it only works mostly for the neighborhood mm-hmm. and her family. But home is such a, a huge aspect mm-hmm. for this story. Because, you know, what makes a home and the dreams of or her dreams or her her family or parents dreams of what a home is, it's I think the house on Mango Street, she 
even though she may not find herself, Esperanza, find herself in it very much, she's tethered to it. Mm -hmm. And so there's always a connection. Even when there are a couple scenes, vignettes, when she's at her school. And I remember the one in particular was... I was thinking there were two. I think there are two, but one in particular was definitely when she was trying to stay because she thought it was, I don't know, an elite squad of lunchers that stayed in school to eat. And then the nun was saying there's really no reason you should just go home. But she asked her, where do you live? And she pointed and she, you know, she doesn't even point to her actual house. She points somewhere else. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think, hmm. Yeah, I think the home, even though the house is house isn't necessarily a home, it's just so symbolic, and I yeah. think it's like the origin place for her. Mm. And we know that she's been other places and that she will go other places, but this house at this moment of time represents this year for her, and so I think it it works yeah. well. well they- it also has a, <laughs> I mean, it's a beautiful title, yeah. the house on Mango yeah. Street. I mean, it's just circumstances that the street was called mango street but there's something intriguing about the title yeah well and they own the house too and i believe that's why that's why it's also important to have the word house in the title like that because of the of the importance of their owning that house as opposed to all a lot of the other places they lived before that which were all they were obviously renting yeah the apartment on mango yeah that doesn't work right it does. And it's not their no, own place does. at that point, right? So now this is like, this is ours. But then we were just talking about the disappointment that came with it. Yeah. Yep, yep. With that, I think I'll connect. There is a line in the very last vignette, which is really intriguing. And it says, actually the last page, 110, we didn't always live on Mango Street. Before that, we lived on Loomis on the third floor. Before that, we lived on Keeler. But before Keeler, it was Paulina. But what I remember most is Mango Street, Sad Red House, the house I belong but do not belong to. And so I wondered what your thoughts were, uh, what she means when she says that she belongs to that house but also doesn't belong to that house. I'm going to go with the it is part of me but it does not define me type of answer, perhaps. What do you think? I know. Yeah, I don't think that's too far from what I would say, certainly. I think she can't, even though she wants to deny, she wants to run away from it. She wants to see that that's just a moment in time, but they're going to find a better house. I think she can't deny that it's it's a part of her life now. It's something that makes up this point in time for her. And then she even says, like, I will leave in order to to come back mm-hmm. so i think there's yeah representation there of i mean she might be crossing a bridge into understanding that hey it might actually be a home even though it wasn't what we had agreed upon yeah. or what we had expected it still is a home and really it's just it's the structure and the the real home is is the family but yeah i i would agree with that yeah yeah the 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 fact that this centers around people I mean, the name of this, the book is about the house, but the but the narrative as it is centers mostly around the different people. It clues you into what you were just talking about. Yeah. And even now, I think we make judgments on people knowing where they live. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, you if you saw someone who lived in a mansion or you went to someone who lived in a mansion <laughs> versus someone, you know, who, who may live in a trailer, you would make some sort of knee-jerk assumption about them and who they are as a person. So that's also, you know, just looking at Mango Street, mm-hmm. with little Sandra, in, or sorry, little Esperanza, sorry about that, little Esperanza in front of it then you would make an assumption about Esperanza, yeah. whether that was correct or not correct. And so there there are pieces, I think, that might be true. There are certain mm-hmm. aspects that Mango Street represents her. Sorry, the house. But there are others that, that doesn't it doesn't represent her. Well, and we, we mentioned how this takes place in Chicago, which is a city, which yeah. and, and that's very, very true for streets and neighborhoods. Uh, Chicago is one place like that. Um, uh, New York is another, and Los Angeles is another, that there are certain areas of these sprawling metropolises that are known for the demographics, uh, are known for the wealth or lack thereof, are known for the crime or lack thereof. You know, like, so for instance, there's a difference between living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or perception of when you live in the Upper West Side or the East Side of Manhattan and the Bronx, the South Bronx, right? Like the Holden Caulfield neighborhood versus, you know, I don't know why Jenny from the block just came into my head, but that's sort of like, you know, that sort of that sort of neighborhood, you know, the the idea that, no, I'm still the girl from the block type of thing. And um, so I think it's a really good I think it's really perceptive that she's talking about, you know, that, that we're talking about that because it that reputation of where you have come follows you in some way or another, despite what you've done. Now, it might not be what defines you, but where you come from gets talked about because people do make assumptions based on what they hear. Absolutely. So you mentioned Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can we can talk about that. I said what can we learn? But I wonder I mean we could say what. I also wonder did you? Did you learn anything about life in Chicago from Cisneros' experiences or in particular what goes on hmm. in these little episodes? And then not only Chicago but Latinx experiences? I felt I learned more about the latter than the former. Agreed. I thought that I learned a lot about what it's like to live in an enclave. I guess that's the right word for it, which is interesting because my ancestral background being many, (laughs) if I look at my, if I go back through my family tree, but my last name is Italian and my, my family is Italian American and they're from that very large portion of Italy called Brooklyn in in Brooklyn backwood you know Brooklyn and and New York City and I keep bringing up New York City because it's my point of reference is that there are enclaves of different uh, different ethnicities in different neighborhoods and and back when my dad was you know my dad was born and, and and raised in Brooklyn until they moved to the suburbs and and they were of a one of those sort of very stereotypical Italian neighborhoods you know where you knew everybody on the block and that sort of thing, something out of a Scorsese film. And um, so that translates over here in a way that's very true to what I understand from from cities and, um, and, and neighborhoods like this. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like maybe we'd have to be a Chicagoan. I don't know if that's the correct name. I think so. In order, Okay, in order to see 
any nuances with that because personally i could just yeah you mentioned new york city like just flop it down there flop it down in some other metropolis and things things don't necessarily change but yeah i think it's more about the people and Mm -hmm. living in that community with uh, people with similar backgrounds, which again, you know, visually, if you want to see in the Heights, like that's Washington Heights, just that particular area and, and everyone knowing everyone and moral, you know, Puerto Rican and, and um, all, all, all types of uh, Latinx and Hispanic people coming together. And what does that look like? So I think we, we got a sense of that from from this. And I was thinking as as Actually, you were talking through the previous answer. Mm. <laughs> I was thinking, could we substitute out these Latinx characters for white people and would it be the same story? And I think in some episodes, yes, maybe just because – and we're going to get into this just about adolescence, mm-hmm. I think that, that which is why this is an attractive work to have for middle school-aged kids or young adults i guess yeah but there there are a lot that it 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 doesn't make sense just with with certain things that are going on or connections between people or how families are interacting i think they interact and engage with one another and there are uh, cultural differences um there with you know families and what does that mean compared to I think white people. So yeah. yes. So which which is great because we don't want to do that. I just wondered, could you? Yeah, and, and we also don't want to run. We don't want to run the risk of of making any culture seem monolithic either. Um, because I, as, you, as you were talking, I was wondering, well, like you know, what are the nuances and differences between a Puerto Rican neighborhood or a Dominicana neighborhood or a uh, or a Cuban neighborhood in Miami, right? Mm. Or something, and and if we put it under that Hispanic Latinx umbrella, are we doing those individual communities a disservice? Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. you know, and this, you know, and uh, I'm sure that there are common threads. Yes, yeah. But I don't, but I don't know. I don't have the experience either through you know just through life experience or just through study of, of knowing what the nuances or the differences between them necessarily are yeah you know not that i'm saying that they're all the same it's just oh right i think think, yeah yeah, i think i think you can you can you can put this novel in different places but it would not ring entirely true or that i think there would be more artifice the further away you took it from Cisneros and her own experience. Mm-hmm. So it kind of needs to happen where it happens for it to feel authentic. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I talked to, yeah, the adolescent girl. So that was something that I feel like is, is universal almost, mm-hmm. but or we'll see. But she writes that I'm going to tell you a story about a girl who doesn't belong. Why does she feel that, well, potentially Cisneros because Esperanza might be modeled after her, or Esperanza doesn't belong, and is that experience for Esperanza something that's universal for all adolescent girls? Uh, I'll tackle the second part first, um, because I think a lot of es- of of, uh, of adolescent girls feel like they don't belong unless they're mm-hmm. unless they're like total alphas and therefore they are Regina Jewel No, that's I think there's something to be said about that because there are there are adolescent girls who 
fit right into the system in which they are benefiting and they always feel like they belong because the systems been, the, the the middle school and high school systems are built for them you know that social structure mm-hmm. is there for them and then they end up in their mid 40s and are trying to sell me MLM crap on Facebook but that's beside the point please stop friending me on Facebook trying to sell me your crap I don't want it anyway oh you don't want to go to a Tupperware no I don't want to go to a Tupperware party I want to buy your jewelry or skincare products no but really <laughs> really I think I think that aside from those those people that are, there are a lot of like it is it's not universal but is very very much like uh, uh it crosses cultures in a big big way mm-hmm. and I think this is and it crosses you know, it's it's straight, it's queer, you know, it's there's black students, there's Latinx students, there's Asian students, you know, like, you know, there's the, uh, so many in our societies, so many adolescent girls feel that they don't belong. Why does she feel that she doesn't belong? Aside from the obvious awkwardness of her and the way she seems to be different than everybody else, especially because of the way this is like, you know, her, her writing herself. I, I, I can't really narrow it down beyond the very, very obvious. What do you think? I, I, I think a lot of it might come down to her appearance. Mm-hmm. She does mention that she's, I don't think she uses the U word, but I can't remember, but basically that she's not an attractive person compared to like Nanny is already pretty even though she's really young so and and so i don't know if this is like a self-perception of which many girls go through of course or if it's actually true does that then lend itself to you know it's hard for me to to find friends to make friends because i i my outward appearance isn't as lovely as other people it's just harder for me i i think she is her personality is distinct which i guess that's true of everybody but from the rest of her family like her two brothers seem pretty similar in how they're described but she so she's different from them and then she's also different from nanny and uh i think yeah i don't know i feel like she sees the world differently Mm -hmm. and it might be her youthful and uh, innocent ways because there's that scene where she is she goes into somebody's house and is like such and such has promised to kiss two boys I can't remember what the boys were offering her and then I feel like the neighbor or whomever wasn't going to do anything about it but she's like Mm-mm-mm. yeah so I'm going to say that it's her outward shell whether it's true or not her perception of her outward shell is the reason why i think it's hard for her and it also might be the house the house might just be like this i don't know cloud over her that she looks at it and she's not proud of it and so this affects how she carries herself and and her Mm -hmm. relationships with other people I agree with you about the experience, whether it's universal for for all adolescent girls. I think so. I think even if we see young women having an easy time of it, a lot of times that's not true, and they're just putting on a facade and they're faking it till they make it, and they're faking it really well. But yeah, it's it's tough to be an oh, well, it's tough to be a woman, period. But it's mm-hmm. tough to be an adolescent girl for sure. Because there's all this stuff that's that's going on. Yeah, 
the the adolescent main character, the adolescent protagonist who doesn't fit in, is almost like a universal character, right? Mm. That like that's the character that draws you in and is interesting to you because they are trying to navigate a world where they're not entirely comfortable and they're trying to become their own person. And, you know, we see it time and time again, you know, going all the way back to Holden, right? You know, Holden. so, you know, I mean, like, yeah, just sort of that, that obvious, not detachment from the rest of the world in that sense, but that, that separateness that they feel from, from everybody else. Do you find Esperanza more engaging than Holden? They're two different characters, and I think they have two different circumstances, so I don't really find either one more engaging than the other. Okay. Do you think if you did a survey, people would answer similarly? Um, I think people might find her a little bit more interesting, um, to be honest with you. But I think I think what it is about her is that she... Did you get the sense that she is trying to not fall into a trap that other people around her are have? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think especially when you that one vignette with her mother yeah. that I was I can't remember I was smarter than Cookie. I can't remember what the title is, but her mother saying like I could have been this. Yeah. I think that's a whole reason about like she really wants to leave Esperanza really wants to leave Mango Street in yeah. order to to make something. So she's looking at that young woman who's going off to college. She's looking at Sally. He's getting married. That's sort of thing and people who are still living with their parents so absolutely i think yeah the 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 white boy character that i would actually do a more one-for-one comparison for with her would be like pony boy curtis from the outsiders you know who is in this very poor area of tulsa and is in with this gang and everything but he's the one who writes the poetry you know like he's he's different and johnny like recognizes that and his brother recognizes that you know that that there's something much different about pony boy as opposed to dally and soda pop and like all those other guys and stuff so i think i think that's a better more apt comparison than holden because holden's like this rich kid who has his own problems and fails to escape them but they don't really they have to do with his standing in society but it's almost like an opposite in that he is we talked about he's kind of almost ashamed of where he is it's 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 an, it's ironic because it's the thing that everybody would want right you know the 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 thing that she's talking about here of how how they they want that dream and he's got the dream and he's just like this is all bs this is all phony but if i was comparing her to like pony boy i think i'd see a lot of similarities because they're both they're both dealing with the world around them and the people around them getting sucked into those those traps and those like, you know, and her friend, um, oh, what's her friend's name with the, who gets married? Sally? Sally is a great example of, of how that happens. Mm. I've actually never read The Outsiders. Mm. I know that it's on your list. It'll, yeah, we'll get to it at some point. I assume so, yeah. Okay. Na- we, I think on this show, we talk about names a great deal. It really all started from, what was that, our third book i think which was uh oh, I know these I things yeah yeah and that has stayed with me for since then i was about to say for a very long time since then because yeah names are important and i always feel really bad if i mispronounce someone's name or you know forget someone's name so anyways there are two vignettes my name and Geraldo, no last name 
what do they those particular vignettes tell us about how identities are tied into our names and then as a secondary question how do names affect the way we see ourselves and the way others see us um i'm looking through my name because <laughs> honestly i can't hear the word Geraldo without, without thinking of Geraldo rivera jerry um but <laughs> anyway <sighs> yeah the, oh god this is i mean it's it's so much a you know we talked about names a little bit in the last episode too um especially with benitha oh. and and we we've talked about names and you're right we have talked about names and other things and they're so she doesn't like her name at least at the beginning is the impression that i got she thinks it's kind yep. of ugly right even though it's it's part of her it's literally part of her lineage she's named for her um great grandmother and She's got this story behind her great-grandmother, which is a really interesting story. But then she says, I have inherited her name, but don't want to inherit her place by the by the window. So it's almost like the name to her is a part of this. It's like a predestiny to it or it's a trap or something. It's it's like, you know, it, it's not a good something good for her because it's something she didn't choose and she feels like she's being drawn into something that she's not going to choose and the idea that you don't have a choice over things is quite prevalent in this book from what i understand it seems like it yeah yeah i think names depending on you and and you i don't know about your first name but i know your middle name there's that connection is that with your my your father? my father's middle name is my first name okay they did not want to name me exactly after my father, okay. so they switched the names. Isn't your middle name also a relative? My middle name is my father's first name. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, so your first name is your father's middle, middle name, name? And my middle name is my father's first name. <laughs> okay, I see what happened yeah. here. So they didn't want you to be. They didn't the want second. to do a junior. No. I see. Okay. So there you go. So th that's not always true of it. So my name Stella is after my great grandmother, mm -hmm. and which is interesting because yeah, we talk about almost like self fulfilling prophecies yeah. or something like that. And I'm told that she had a lovely singing voice and was very musical, yeah. and that sort of skipped. It skipped my mom, which she admits. But and you know I I'm able to carry a tune, I'll say. So you know some fun things like that but just yeah having that connection that root to family depending mm -hmm. on I, I think the culture especially as well as you know circumstances yeah I think it I love Esperanza I think that's beautiful in my I mean I, I, I think it's a beautiful name yeah. yeah I do too but you know there's no convincing she would probably roll her eyes but there's also the connection with the Latin sparrow to hope so it you know it, mm -hmm. it conjures so many things for me I think a lot of it I shouldn't say a lot of it, but part of it also is, I think, a cultural divide because once that vignette continues, people are unable to pronounce it properly for whatever reason, probably on purpose. But it's it's almost like, you know, it, it's made ugly by the fact that people are disrespecting it and not even giving it a shot of trying to, you know, pronounce it. And by pronouncing it correctly and respecting it, you're also knowing that person. And so I, I think names, there's lots of stuff wrapped up in it because pronouncing and, and no, knowing origins is like knowing that person and knowing them and loving them and things like that. So mm -hmm. I, I think that all goes together. So unfortunately, I think that just represents the the cultural divide as a whole. And I feel like that's true with 
I, I think this is one of the vignettes. My name. Oh, I should talk about Geralda. The my name one is one of the the vignettes that does not work with a a white protagonist. Mm. And I think also with racist people that I've encountered talking about. Um, I don't know if I want to get into these weeds. <laughs> Uh, okay, you know what? I think I know where you're going because um, so one of the things I do, I can te- I can do this from a teacher perspective, and I, I'm sure okay. you can relate to this. So um, you know, we both take a att- we, t- we take attendance in class, right? And you know, I have to enter it into a computer, but I for for expediency's sake, I have a roster printed on a piece of paper that I put on a clipboard so that I can just take attendance, right? And I have. In my on that clipboard um, column, you know, name, pronoun, and then I have preferred name slash pronunciation because Mm -hmm. I have students who actually go by their middle name. Right. So their their name might be Christopher Tyler, but they prefer to be called Tyler. Right. Mm -hmm. Or they prefer TJ, you know, or something. But the pronunciation to me is important of both their first and their last name. The last name I'm particularly sensitive to based on the number of ways Panarese has been mispronounced over the 44 years I've been on this earth. But um, the first name is, I think you're getting right out there, where I've heard over the years, and it comes a lot from white people and, and my white colleagues, older white colleagues, talk about the crazy names that yeah. black people give their kids. Yep. And first of all, how many ways have white people spelled Mackenzie or added a letter to the word Aiden to come up with a name that I don't think existed 20 years ago? Not to mention Apple. Yeah, just like, come on. Like, you know, uh, but that being aside, it's just it, it's such a basic form of respect to get somebody's name right on at least the second try. Like, and I think most people would say, like, on the first try, if you get it a little bit wrong most people are pretty gracious and they correct you but from that point on you should be able to get it it's not hard and sometimes i will write out the pronunciation phonetically you know so i had a girl named kalasia in my class a few years ago and i literally wrote out and i didn't have to really didn't have to do this after the second week of school right but uh, you know but I wrote Kalasia because I was like, you know, I want to make sure I hit the right pronunciation, the right syllable, the right whatever, because it's like, you know, that matters to that student, you know? Absolutely. And actually, yeah. I remember this is, uh, this is sort of related. I had a student, her name was Cassie. She kept pronouncing my name wrong. And I, you know, I wouldn't really correct her, but she said, well, I'm just going to call you whatever. I said, well, you know, I said, I said, I said, yeah, but I, I did make an effort to make sure I called you by the name you like to be called. Because her name was like Cassandra mm-hmm. or something like that. And she's like, and then after that, she actually started pronouncing my name right. And I wasn't trying to be a jerk, right? And I wasn't trying to be yeah. all power play about it. But, you know, and I'm so used to having that pronounced, mispronounced that it wasn't really big, bugging me. But it was this sort of like, you know, that idea of just basic respect for somebody else where you are like, you know, yeah, I'm going to make the effort. And saying that you're not is kind of disrespectful. You know, and I didn't take it personally, right? Because I really like this kid, and it, it, we worked really, really well together. We had a real great relationship. But, but that, you know, that aspect of it, where it's like, you know, yeah, I'm gonna make that effort because it's the least anybody can do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, tangent over. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, that is what I was was getting at. So mm-hmm. we can we went through the weeds and we we came out yeah, the other side. Yeah. I think with with the Geraldo no last name, I would only say that I feel like 
giving him a name because this was an interaction. Was it Sally that met him? She met him at a dance. I think it was Sally, right? No, Marin. So Geraldo was killed in a hit and run. Mm -hmm. And really, that's all they have about him is Geraldo and then what he was wearing. And I feel like without the name Geraldo, just this young man wearing da-da-da-da-da could have just been any any type of person but to give him that name i think almost like really humanizes him like hey it's not just some latino that was killed on the street his name was geraldo and so you know respect should be paid to him so i think it's able to really uh pull it closer to you by giving him a name in that particular vignette yeah and there, there's, I guess there's something about memory here and, and the way people fled, the way people kind of fly in and out of your life, in this case, tragically, people who are in there for a split second, you know, we remember their name, but we don't remember the last name and things like that. So, yeah. okay, so getting closer to the end. So again, in the first vignette, talking about the house for the first time mm-hmm. on page four. Uh, saying that the house is not the way they told it at all, small and red, tight steps, bricks are crumbling, no front yard. Okay, so here, this significant, well, I don't have to say it's significant, this quotation here, there is no front yard, only four little elms, the city planted by the curb. What do you think is the significance of that particular line, specifically the four little elms, the city planted by the curb? It sounds so like like lip service paid to that group like the 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 group of people who were in that neighborhood or that family you know lip service by the government yeah lip service by the government okay like you know the the they the the whole idea of planting trees in a neighborhood like that is meant to beautify the neighborhood but these four probably you know elm trees take a long time to grow right Mm. you know because my parents have one that that the town planted in, in in the area in front of the house and and you know when when it was first planted it took it took years to really get some real heft to it and even then it's not as big as it probably eventually will be you know so it's just kind of like oh yeah we put these here and it's like you know it's just like thanks for nothing right it's almost the symbolic of the neglect and the second class citizenry and the sort of like afterthought in a sense that that the, that the city has thought of of them i can see that i am going to take a more hopeful route if only because it reminds me slightly of a tree grows in brooklyn mm. and i feel like there might be some hope there yes there are just these four little elms that they're planted but they have you know they were given this ideal picture of a home and they've come to this and there's not much of anything, but is there hope in what it could be with having these these four elms that they're planted by the curb? So I can't, you know, I'm trying to picture, of course, well, I guess I'm envisioning New York City, that kind of thing. But just, you know, the tree grows in Brooklyn, that thing was spouting out of the, the concrete. So it's like mm. this crazy thing that was able to survive. So is that some way, you know, look, they're able to survive in this, like, hostile <laughs> hostile environment they're not meant to be but they're there's the potential so they're they're almost like the the family there and there's potential there in the house so i have some hope with it but i i totally see what you're saying that's just an afterthought and pish posh this is your front yard yeah but that whole idea of of hope and and hopefully this will take root 
I understand as well. You know, mm-hmm. you know, like mama's plant and, and a raisin in the sun, right? You know, there's that, 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 that whole idea. I've never read a tree goes from Brooklyn. It's on my list to read. I recently read last exit to Brooklyn, which is really, really dark. <laughs> so, um, but is that the film they just made with Edward Norton. Not sure, but I, I see your point about hope and I see your, and, and I, that potential for something to grow is also there too. Both answers Both in my mind are accepted. I'm so glad to hear yes. that. Yes. I thought you needed As to know that. As a teacher, I'm glad that you would accept. <laughs> okay, so the, the final question is just about this last chapter. I've already covered one of them, but where is she? Where is Esperanza in this last chapter? Did, did she manage to escape from Mango Street? And if she did, how did she manage to escape? I, I, I want to say she did because she certainly... I, I think because she ends with the whole phrase like one day I will pack my bags of books and paper one day I will say goodbye to Mango I'm too strong for her to keep me here forever one day I will go away and I believe that I don't believe this is somebody who is just telling them that to themselves or lying to themselves in that capacity I, I honestly think that, that she's capable of doing that and she's shown that as a character and I think that's supposed to hint that she did get out Especially because she says, you know, I, I have gone away to come back for the ones I left behind for the ones who cannot out. And I think that's I think that's just as important. That's the last line of the book. And I think that just seems to be as important as any of the other lines, because she's dreaming, but she's doing it in a very realistic way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I it, it's also interesting her use of different pronouns. Like, I feel like we're seeing two different Esperanzas. Mm. So the I is the one that made it out. And the the she is the one that is still in Mango on Mango Street, mm-hmm. or people are looking back at her, you know that sort of thing. So I feel like she has made it out. I think she's made it out not only in her dreams but in reality as well. It seems like just like the author that she is a writer, um, since she she likes to tell stories as she says uh, inside her head. Yeah. But I, I believe that because she also is gathering her papers and her book that it, it's she's also a writer outside of her head as well so i think that she has escaped i think she's escaped via writing so she has accomplished what her mom was unable to even though her mom i think was an opera singer unless i'm i this is the problem with reading multiple books is that sometimes <laughs> my narrative threads get confused yeah. but i'm pretty sure her mom said she's smart cookie Da, da, da. Yeah, opera records. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, she was a singer. Um, so she was able to to accomplish what her mother was not. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, seeing those pronouns, as I said. So there is hope. Yeah. Even though she says that she belongs and doesn't want to belong, all that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I never got the feeling that this book. I mean, there's a lot of really terrible things that happen in this book. Oh yeah. And I think it has some of them happen to her. Um, you have Sally who just reading that whole part where she's married off at a young, young age to a man who locks her in the house essentially all day, like, and, and, and some of the other people, but there's hope for her. I I don't feel that she's going to repeat the vicious cycle that she was brought into. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I could have asked a question about Esperanza's sexual awakening. I'm not sure how I would have formatted that, but also just that vignette 
with the the red clown. Yeah. I think is the vignette title, which you know I didn't realize. Which is, I don't know why it goes from third person singular to third person plural because that's what threw me off when the synopsis said that she was raped by multiple people. But is well, I guess here's my question now: Is do you think that was enough, and we didn't need to look at that anymore, or was there a, a misstep potentially in not addressing what that what the effect of that was on Esperanza? Oh, and it comes so close to the end of the book too, right? Yeah, yeah, and there have been some leading. So yeah, I think. It was a Chinese man, I think, who forcibly kissed her. Yeah. Um, they had that moment where they were, uh, you know, in heels and walking up and down the street, and she had a crush on someone. So you can see, you know, burgeoning again. It seems like she's 16 by the end of that. But just to think, in a 7th or 8th grader is raped by multiple people at a carnival. Yeah, that is near the end. It's done in a way that's... I don't know if surreal is like the right word, but the scene is very, um, I actually think it's a very well written scene because it confuses us just as much as she, as the narrator is confused. If that makes any sense, like she knows what's going on, but isn't comprehending what's going on and she's upset. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a traumatic moment that is coming at her flashes and things like that. And so she's trying to relate that to us as it happened. Um, And I think that's very effective. And I guess present or organizationally, because Sally was her, I guess, wing woman Mm -hmm. in that vignette. The next one is actually about Sally getting married. Yes. So we see that that wasn't a happy situation. Mm -hmm. And then the next one after that were the three sisters. Mm -hmm. And so if she were in a bad place, which she probably was after that i mean just reading the the red clown situation they talk about her potential and that you know her her wish will come true and that there's something special about her and that's one of those i think you were also talking about the formatting here where they're having a conversation but there's no quotations and, and going through and everything so that those three together could potentially work really well in saying a lot about the red clown situation and that sexual assault without like delving into what that would be like plus we also have to think that this this is esperanza writing it and it's not necessarily well it could be esperanza older esperanza looking back Mm -hmm. but if we're also looking at esperanza in the moment what can you really yeah. expect of a 12, 13-year-old to reconcile or like come to terms with or understand the tra- trauma period? Mm-hmm. It's hard for people to you know reconcile with and figure out. But a 12, 13-year-old, so it's not like we're going to have a vignette that's like, oh, you know, this is how I'm feeling, all of that. So in retrospect, I think there was no misstep. I think it's it's done as it should be it's just it was really shocking though because you are getting to the end and then you have this really violent moment yeah and then you basically finish up the work about 15 pages later or so and you're kind of like tossed around and and when you don't realize how old she is i think until sally gets married i think that's like the gut punch because you're 
as you see Esperanza grow in this, you're like, oh, you choose, you know, not that it makes it better, but it's just like, okay, a 16-year-old, and then you're like, oh, well, wait, Sally's not even eighth grade. This is terrible. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> what makes me even more nervous is that this is almost like a composite. Some characters are composite of people that she knows in real yeah. life, and so it just makes me really concerned that how true to real life was this for either you, Sandra, or... Um, someone that you may have known or, or friends like that really concerns me as well. Yeah. Uh, sorry to leave it on a downer, no, it's okay. but you know how I've been interested in um, the depictions of sexual assault and various forms of media too. So I felt like we had to talk about it. I think that's all I have. Do you have anything else? I do not. I hate to say that like, oh, I'm glad you brought that up because it's sexual assault is not something I enjoy talking about. No, yeah. But I think we couldn't ignore it. Yeah, no. I think once you do not talk about things or ignore it, it's like, are you shoving it under the rug? Yeah, as if those yeah. sorts of things don't happen in real life? No, yeah. So, and that that's, again, I think another situation that could be any person, any race or yeah. orientation or gender oh yeah so there that, have been many that that right there was the moment many yeah. women many girls who unfortunately have had a similar trauma happen to them yeah. okay well the final question that comes with this is is this required reading despite my not knowing what to make of this book <laughs> From this discussion, I would say yes, because there is a lot that you can get out of the book. It may require a reread mm -hmm. or an actual closer study to really, truly grasp it. But I do feel it's a very rich novel that that, yeah, like you should read because you because of the way it, it depicts. A... I agree. I, I do think it it needs a reread. Maybe not needs. That's not good. I think in order to best appreciate it, I think the reread would help because, mm -hmm. like I said, I think at the beginning, once you're able to perhaps get yourself in the mind space of, oh, these are disconnected or connected separate episodes, and then once you go through, then can I look at the the arc that we see yeah. for Esperanza? And, and do that. And it's short enough that you can do that without it being, you know, labor intensive. Yeah, that's true. So, so that's I think true. that works. I think, yeah, young adults, I think w this would work really well. So I, I completely understand why they're, mm -hmm. they're giving that to middle school age students. I think the adolescents, that sort of theme. And I think it would be a good pair, I mean, to have a serious conversation about you know, what is sexual assault? Because I think that this is something that we, I'm speaking from the experience of where I was working, but we are really failing mm -hmm. our younger generations because we are raising young men <laughs> without really educating them on what assault is. So then when they're doing stuff, it's, I can't say it's not their fault, but also if they weren't educated, then that's a problem. So the education, it's got to start early on, and then, you know, so we can prevent the kind of stuff that we saw in this yeah. work from happening. So because some people, and, and I'm speaking from educational experience that some people, some young women are forced to do things, mm -hmm. and they didn't 
it was more of a, the gentleman was like, you'd be cool if you did this. Oh, yeah. Well, guess what? You were forced to – that's sexual assault it right is, there. Yeah. But they don't – the young men, you know, don't realize that. The young women don't. So there's an issue there. So using that vignette potentially – or, or a couple of them, really, just that sexual awakening that we see in there as one of those themes to discuss that and use that, I think, would be really helpful in the educational setting. Yeah, and, and to kind of piggyback on that, the young men are not taught the proper lessons regarding the concept of consent that yeah. they need to. They are, they're not – now, directly in education, they're not taught to be entitled. That's a cultural teaching um, and a societal teaching, but a lot of them do are brought up still with that sense of entitlement to girls or women's bodies. And um, that's a whole God, that's a course, right? So, but um, it's not just a conversation. It's, it's a very <laughs> deep, you know, but, um, but the idea that, and then the same idea that women are taught that they have to protect themselves you know, which is not a bad thing, but at the same time, it's like yeah. they're taught that they have to protect themselves because the because nobody is teaching the boys to not be feel that they are entitled to their body. You know, like so. So it's yeah. it's kind of this really yeah, it's a really really messed up situation, and and it's a, 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 an enormous disservice that we're doing that we've done. It's gotten better in recent years, I think, especially adolescent girls that I've, I've encountered seem to be more aware of, of the concept of consent, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Oh, it's the, the progress is incremental and it's, you know, this, we need a better, better education. And even at a young age, like this is not something you teach with seniors. This is something you use with eighth or ninth graders. And, yeah. And, I think, you know, that, yeah, I'm sorry. And that's a great, that's a very good age to have that lesson. Be, and be explicit yeah, about that lesson, too. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think we've had certain things, like the Gillette ad, and, and I think mm-hmm. the Me Too movement and Time's Up have really shaken mm-hmm. society. So now people, even though there are still the annoying people that are like, oh, that was without my consent, and I roll my eyes at them because it's not a joke. I think that <laughs> it's good. It's yeah. good that people are, like, cautious about, you know, I shouldn't touch you. Yes, please don't touch me, actually. <laughs> Golly. Okay, uh, we have some comments. It's like we've had a desert, a dry yes. desert, and now comments are coming out of the woodwork. Yes, um, and I think part of that is because our feed is finally back. Oh, my up. gosh. Do you feel guilty about breaking it? Um, No, because I didn't break it. But um, <laughs> but I did help fix it, and by the time uh-huh. this comes out, if you are a regular listener, all of the back episodes will have been placed back up on the feed. I think there was a conspiracy, frankly. You broke the feed whenever my episode was coming out. Mm. So you wanted your episodes to have a higher download number. Mm. <laughs> He's rolling his eyes. Yes. Okay, go on. All right. So we have a we have two Facebook comments and we have an email. So they're all on all of these comments in the email are on episode fifty four, which was the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Um, Robert Ward, our scholastic book buddy, commented, I just want you to know, Tom Panneries and Stella, that I had intended to listen to the audiobook last weekend, but got delayed. I listened to it today, knowing nothing about it, today on Mother's Day. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's not, not, not a Mother's Day. Not a Mother's Day book. Gene Hendricks. In the end, it's a Mother's Day book, I suppose. I guess so. <laughs> 
Gene Hendricks commented, pardon me if I missed it, but did you mention where the title of the book comes from in the episode? And I know that it comes from obviously the, the, what happened, but I don't know if it, there's, it's, if the phrasing comes from a specific place, cause I never did the research into that. No, no, no. My only guess would be because Christopher's writing a mystery novel mm. that it would almost be coming from him and, and make it almost Holmes esque. Yeah. But I don't know that it's, I don't remember if he titled his journal and I can't, I'd have to like run away from my computer and get the book i don't know that he actually like titled it the curious incident of the dog of yeah the time. okay all right and then we have an email from professor allen <gasps> cheapskate yes stella and tom listening to your discourse the curious incident led me to think about my brother-in-law philip who is developmentally disabled not to conflate all disabilities, but there are certain similarities to the lead character in the novel. And over the 35 plus years I've known Philip, I've become more sensitive to portrayals of characters with this type of issue. You made a good point about the book bringing sympathy to a mentally challenged character without it being smarmy, as Tom said, or doing so in a condescending manner. I think society has made great strides in this area. My wife, Valerie, has powerful stories about how her brother was treated in the 60s and 70s by kids, by adults, by everyone. By kids? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I was thinking treated medically, but... No, no, no. I understand. Just, uh, I understand now. As Tom said, kids treat their peers with special needs so much better than decades ago. We moved Philip and his father out here to Ohio in 2019, and I spent a lot of time with him that first summer we went out weekly to run the to run the errands get lunch visit the comic shop just spend time together and the way he was treated and related to in public was strikingly different in the positive direction than in the 1990s the last time i spent regular time with him waitresses cashiers store greeted store greeters even comic shop people everyone treated him well was additive communicated philip has trouble speaking perfectly clear and generally respectful Nobody that I saw in 2019, 2020, 2021 had a reflexive weirded out or freaked out reaction. This was common in the 90s. He is not ignored in stores and I saw him being ignored a quarter century ago. I think there are a number of things that work in this improved treatment. The general mainstreaming of people with Down syndrome and other physical and mental disabilities and open discussions of Asperger's and autism and the spectrum have been important in this. Most everybody these days has friends or family members with these issues or otherwise comes into frequent contact with people with a range of physical, emotional or developmental disabilities. And certainly fictional works like this have helped people grow in knowledge and sensitivity. Thank you for covering a book that struck so close to home. You keep up the good work and take care. Professor Allen, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Darkness to Light, Tess Superfan. Makes Stella sick. <laughs> yeah, I made sure that I mentioned that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, thank you, Alan, for that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Learning more about yeah. that. All right. Well, I guess I guess this is it. Yeah, this is it. Okay, this is we're wrapping up. What are we going to be doing next time? All right, we're we're reading another novel. We are going to be reading "Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close" by Jonathan Safran Four. Starring Tom Hanks? Yes, it was a movie starring Tom Hanks. Okay. And Carrie Russell? Maybe. 
I I okay. I have not seen the film and I have never uh, so I, I don't know. I, I'm 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 looking it up. I'm on IMDb I might right be now. I'm thinking of August August something something. Okay, so Felicity or something. Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock. Oh, okay. Max von Sydow, John Goodman's in it, but Sandra Bullock's the lead female role. Viola Davis has a role in it as well. Wow, is this on your list? What's happening? It's on my goodreads to read list so yeah okay so you're just using this podcast to whittle down your long list. like you aren't <laughs> the roy gilmore oh, reading touche uh black pot yeah. touche yeah yeah, yeah. So, no. yeah so so the comeback in about a, a month or so for that you can of course send us uh, feedback um once we get all the old episodes back up feel free to go back through those and comment on anything you want to And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And be sure to listen well to the cicada orgy that is going on around you. Yes, it's extremely loud. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, sir. I I do see what you did there. Good night. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by Two True Freaks. That's Two True Freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. That I'm seeing on the street I never thought I'd see the day Since when I Latin people scared of heat When I was a little girl Growing up in the hills of Vega Alta My favorite time of year was Christmas time Ask me why Why? There wasn't an ounce of snow But oh, the coquito would fly as we sang the aguinaldo, the carnaval would begin to grow. Business is closed, and we're about to go. Let's have a carnaval del barrio. Epa! Carnaval del barrio. Carnaval. Barrio Carnaval Carnaval del barrio Barrio Carnaval del barrio We don't need electricidad Get off your butt, avanza Saca la maraca, bring your tambourine Come and join the parranda Hey Carnaval
whatever comes into your head Just so long as you sing Oh, my mom is Dominican Cuban My dad is from Chile NPR, which means I'm Chile Dominican But I always say I'm from Queens Vanessa, don't pretend that Usnavi is your friend. We don't know that he loves you. <laughs> wow. Now that you mention that sexual tension, it's easy to see. Yo, this is bogus. Haven't you noticed? You get all your coffee for free. Hey! Tell the whole town I'm bouncing. I guess you on, I'm posting shots. Let me grab everybody a soda pop. Twist off the bottle, kiss it up to God. I miss up with a Claudia. It's time to fly though. Then yeah, I got la pack up the carro. I'm booking a flight with the up tomorrow. Oh my god. Want. We closed the bodega, the neighborhood is gone They selling the dispatcher and they closing the salon And they'll never turn the lights back on Cause we are powerless, we are powerless And y'all keep dancing and singing and celebrating And it's getting late and this place is disintegrating We are powerless, we are powerless Alright, we're powerless, so light up a candle There's nothing going on here that we can't handle Right, sonny, calling the coroners. Maybe we're powerless, a corner full of foreigners. Maybe this neighborhood's changing forever. Maybe tonight is our last night together. However, how do you want to face it? Do you want to waste it when the end is so close you can taste it? Y'all could cry with your head in the sand. I'm gonna fly this flag that I got in my hand. Hey. Can we raise our voice tonight? Can we make a little noise tonight? Hey. Cross the bridge and east the caucus
last night in the hood again. Well, 